Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Doris, let me uh, start by telling you what a, what a fantastic uh, treat this is for me. I'm a I like to read a lot of history, and I'm a particularly a, a Doris Kearns Goodwin groupie, as you right. know, as I know you know from before this, because we've corresponded. Indeed. Oh, this uh, is a great treat for me. And so this is as good as it gets, and I know all, uh, all you people who read history uh, feel the same way. And for those of you who don't read history, and in fact, for those of you who don't read at all, uh, you, can always see the, you can always see the output in, uh, in movies because I think you, uh, you helped generate a number of Oscars for uh, the movie uh, Lincoln and uh, specifically for Daniel Day-Lewis and his role in that. It was a great experience. I mean, he really became Lincoln. So Spielberg had hoped that he would be Lincoln for two previous scripts before Tony Kushner wrote the award-winning script. And when finally Daniel said yes, they asked me if I would take him to Springfield, Illinois to show him the sights, but he had to pretend he wasn't Daniel Day-Lewis anymore because he wanted to be incognito for a year while he became Daniel, while Daniel became Lincoln. So I took him to all the sites, everything was fine. And the first night we were supposed to just have dinner at the hotel so that nobody would know who he was. But he said, no, let's go to a bar. So we go to a bar and immediately- As Lincoln? No, he's going as incognito. <laughs> he didn't have the beard he yet. Didn't, he didn't split rails or anything like that? <laughs> On the way to the bar. Yeah. So then immediately somebody bought us drinks, and I thought, oh my god, it's already over. But they hadn't recognized him. They had recognized me, so it was a big joke between <laughs> us. So anyway, finally, when the premiere happened, and for, for a year I sent him books about Clay and Webster. We became friends. But then he wouldn't let me see him on the filming set because he was Lincoln. He couldn't be Daniel anymore. He, he wouldn't even talk to the other actors except as Mr. Lincoln or Mr. President. So finally I see him when the premiere comes to New York and he says, let's go to a bar to remember that first bar. So he takes me to the Carlisle. Everything's great. We have these old Cubans. He has more than I do, so it's all fine. But then when he gets the first of his series of awards, Spielberg comes and tells how he had rejected these earlier roles and he wrote these beautiful rejection notes. And finally he said yes. And then Daniel gets up there and unaccountably there's a Wall Street reporter and then in the room. He says, I don't reject everything. When Doris Kearns Goodwin asked me to go binge drinking with her, I accepted it once. <laughs> I was proud. <laughs> okay, another, another person you led on the road to ruin, but the, um, <laughs> Another person. <laughs> so let me, uh, let me just, uh, let me just, re let me finish my introduction. You can see we get right into this, but um, you probably don't know this, but you won a Pulitzer Prize. I, I heard it Extraordinary said. book uh, with the word ordinary in it, but it was an extraordinary book. No Ordinary Time, Ellen, uh, Franklin and Ella Roosevelt, The Home Front in World War II, which we were talking about offstage, so you know how much I like that book. And today you're, uh, you're out with a new book, uh, Leadership in Turbulent Times, uh, which reviews uh, key leadership lessons from uh, certain presidents whose biographies you've, uh, you've written. So uh, now I have to say, when I've read this book, which I enjoyed thoroughly, I, can, I conflated a little bit with the individual story uh, biographies that I've read. But it was terrific. But it leads to the question, uh, why a book on leadership now? <laughs> Duh. And why on leadership in turbulent times now? Yes, it was yes. Such a peaceful time. Well, actually, when I began it, it wasn't quite as turbulent as it is right now. But even then, there was a sense that Washington wasn't working well together. And more than that, I'd been giving lectures on leadership to business groups for the last 20 years. And I thought I'd come up with lessons 
about how my guys, and I, I shouldn't call them my guys, that might seem a little disrespectful, right. except I've lived with them for so long, I wake up with them in the morning, I think about them when I go to bed at night. My only fear is that in the afterlife there's gonna be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied, and everyone is gonna tell me every single thing I got wrong about them. And the first no, they'll say, which one of us did you like better, and you're gonna be in bed. <laughs> or Lyndon Johnson yes. will yell out, yes. how come that damn book on the Kennedys was twice as long as the book yes. you wrote about me? But anyway, so I take Lincoln. included the Fitzgeralds. Yeah, that was, that's exactly right. Yes. I take Lincoln and Teddy and Franklin and LBJ. I mean, LBJ, partly because I know him, as we'll talk about, but partly because I do think his leadership in domestic affairs and civil rights deserves to be in this group. And I wanted to see how they became leaders, where their ambition came from. These are the things I used to talk about in college. When you were young, you'd have these huge discussions about when do you first recognize yourself as a leader? When do other people think about you that way? What happens if you have to go through a tough time in adversity? Does the man make the times or the times make the man? Is crisis important? All these big questions we thought about in college. I thought, now maybe at my advancing age, I've studied these four guys, I'll look at them in a different way and hopefully come up with some thoughts about leadership. Now, because you worked with uh, LBJ, uh, certainly gave you a, a closer feeling for LBJ, but it must have given you a closer feeling in general for what it means to wield that presidential power. Oh, without question. In fact, we were talking before I came in about the curious nature of the way I ended up working for LBJ. I was 24. I was a graduate student at Harvard. I got this White House Fellowship, a program that still exists today where you work in the cabinet or for the White House. We had a dance at the White House the night we were selected. President Johnson did dance with me, not that peculiar. There were only three women out of the 16 White House fellows. But as he twirled me around the floor, he whispered that I was to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But it was not to be that simple, for in the months leading up to my selection, like many young people, I was active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I'd written an article against LBJ, which unfortunately came out in the New Republic two days after the dance in the White House. And the title of the article was How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. <laughs> so I was certain he would kick me out of the program. But instead, surprisingly, he said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. But, so I yeah. did work, end up working for him in the White House and then accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs. I would say that was a peculiar, ta uh, uh, I guess, uh, confidence that in himself that LBJ would have, that LBJ lean that he can convince anybody of anything if he set his mind to it. No, I think that's right. And it turned out to be an extraordinary experience. I mean, I think part of the reason he liked being with me was that I loved listening to his stories, which were colorful and anecdotal. I later found out that half of them weren't true, but they were great nonetheless. So I think he liked that I could listen to his stories. And then also, I worried at some point that he was somewhat of a womanizer, and I was a young woman. So I was constantly chattering to him about steady boyfriends, even when I had no boyfriends at all. Everything was perfectly working until one day he said he wanted to discuss our relationship, which sounded ominous when he took me nearby. He had this lake called Lake Lyndon Johnson, and he wine and cheese and a red check table called all the romantic traffics, and he started outdoors more than any other woman I have ever known, and my heart sank. And then he said, you remind me of my mother. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty embarrassing. So that was our relationship. Oh my, okay, well, I will tell you, that is a long road we could go down, but we're not. But we'll go this uh, way. Why don't we stay with, why don't we, why don't we go to hit the history part of the history conversation? Deal. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's, if, we, if you don't mind, we can start, the, you know, the structure of the book really is um, kind of early indicia of greatness and then adversity that each of them that helped to, you know, helped to influence their, their personality and then a challenge that really fleshed it out from which they learned but from which we can learn because of their success and then kind of the aftermath for each one. But why don't you, just if you, if you don't mind hitting the highlights of their early lives that, that kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, suggested the greatness that would follow. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, there's no single trajectory to leadership. They start in very different places. Lincoln, such poverty. The two Roosevelts from privileged, wealthy background. Lyndon Johnson, intermittently poor and middle class. They have different traits from the beginning. And they come to a leadership position at different times in their lives. Lincoln, more than any of the others, even when he's 23 years old, he runs for office on his own the first time. He's living in the city of New Salem for six months. And you have to give a handbill if you're running for office. Well, you say why you want to run for office. At 23, he said, every man has his own peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man. I know I may not get elected because I have no popular relations to recommend me. But I've, if I lose, I've been too chagrined by disappointment to be very much chagrined again. But then he says, but if I fail, I will try five or six more times until it's really humiliating, and then I'll stop trying. Now, that's incredible to have Can that you, sense. For the sake of us underachievers, how old was he when he wrote that? 23 years old. Right. I mean, and it's a beautiful letter. And it talks about education as the key thing for the country to move forward. It talks about infrastructure that he wanted to build so that poor farmers could build and get their works to market. Um, but he's different. He's different from all the others. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, when he's 23, he runs for office too. But it's not his own initiative, as it was for Lincoln. It was that the boss comes to him. He's in the Silk Stocking District of New York and knows that his father's a well-known philanthropist. The Roosevelt name is good in the history of New York. And why doesn't he run? And it would be a safe seat for him to run from. So he doesn't even think about it. I'm going in to make life better, to have the esteem of fellow men. He said, just an adventure. He said, I didn't develop the self-consciousness of wanting to help other people until later in life. During his term as state legislature, he went to these tenements where cigars were being manufactured. And he saw the horrible conditions, and he decided this isn't right, and it changed his whole laissez-faire kind of philosophy. FDR is 28 years old without having accomplished anything. I mean, he's a late bloomer, if we right. want to believe it. 28's not so late, but kind of a late bloomer. He had gone to Harvard with the gentleman C. He went to Columbia Law School. He was working in a Wall Street firm here. Not, not even being particularly, we know all about yeah. that. But it was, he wasn't even doing particularly well yeah. in it. And then all of a sudden, a boss comes to him and says, why don't you run, and we'll give you a safe Democratic seat in Dutchess County, because they knew his name was Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was so popular as a Republican that maybe you'd get a crossover. And your mother's wealthy. And they didn't quite say that to him, and she can help the campaign. And the interesting thing, he says yes right away. And once he gets out on that campaign trail, he loved it. He was a natural. Um, he loved talking to people. He would listen to people. He didn't know how to speak that well. At the beginning, Eleanor, who was married to him at the time already, said he would speak so slowly sometimes she was so afraid he would never go on. There'd be these huge pauses. And then later, by the end of the campaign, he was speaking so fast and so long, two hours he'd still be on the stage and have to pull him off. But he found what was in him. He said, everybody, William James, the philosopher, said, has a voice within them. And at a certain moment, they say, this is the real me. That was the real me for him. And then there's LBJ, who from the time he's four years old is listening in the shadows to his father, who's in the state legislature, exchange tales with his cronies, and he loves it. He goes on the campaign trail with his father, and he says that nothing made him happier than being out among the people. So then he goes to college, and he wants to become a powerhouse. So the first thing he does, he works in the janitorial crew outside, and he collects more trash than anybody does, so he gets noticed. So he gets moved into the janitorial crew inside, and then he wants to have mop the floors right next to the president of the school because his theory was you get close to the guy who's at the top and you'll get to the top. So he's mopping floors. The next thing you know, he's talking to the president. The next thing you know, he's the clerk in the president's office. The next thing you know, he's running the president's office. So he had that desire for power from the time he was a little kid. So you could have seen you could, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, super talented from the get-go, really. And Lincoln, 
you wouldn't have seen him because he was a rural life, but everybody around him had him pegged as somebody who was different from everybody else. Kind of the other two, it's a matter of finding the right place or, or hard work. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, with, with FDR, there's no question that the polio attack changed him. He was a pretty arrogant, elitist guy. He was charming. But when polio happened, it taught him humility. And I don't mean humbleness, but it taught him the acknowledgement of his limitations. And when he created the rehab center at Warm Springs and became Doc Roosevelt, and he made those other people in Warm Springs feel the joy in life again. He would have games in the pool. He would have dances in the wheelchair. He made people feel, just because you're paralyzed, it hasn't changed your joy of life. He had such optimism and confidence, he exuded it to them. He became a much greater leader after that. Did he that. ever, you know, whenever I read about FDR, I'm always amazed of how, I mean, he was a tall, good, I mean, he oh, was. Oh, he was a good looking guy. Very good looking. I think Lincoln was too. I mean, if he didn't have that beard. I, one time I was on John Stewart and I said I thought Lincoln was sexy when he was young and he never let me forget that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what you think about with Abraham Lincoln. No. Anyway, yes, FDR was good looking. But I, I'm surprised at how little, I mean, the devastation of polio at that point um, impeded him. Without a question. I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking. There was no, I mean, you usually expect people to go into a funk and how quickly you come out of it. I missed the funk. I mean, what's amazing is that right from the beginning, it really took him about four years of hard, sustained work to be able to move around again. I mean, his lower body was never going to come back to any kind of power. But they told him if you could increase the strength of your upper body, you'll be able to move around. So he would be asked to be taken from the wheelchair and put on the floor of his library so that he could crawl for hours and strengthen his upper back. And then he started practicing going up the steps, hoisting himself one at a time. And then when he'd get to the top, sweating, they would have a celebration at the top. He celebrated every little improvement. And all the indignities of living that kind of life, having to be helped to do everything. And yet, no, it, it didn't. Uh... If it changed him, it changed and made him more optimistic and it for changed, some reason. And it made him able to connect to people who had also been dealt an unkind hand. He was much more warm-hearted after that. Right. I mean, he said, if somebody said to him, how do you, how do you deal with the pr pressures of the presidency? He said, if you've spent two years trying to move your big toe an inch, you'll learn how to deal with the problems of the presidency. There's a story in 1924, he came back to New York to the place where he'd, he had worked. And he was going across the corridor. He was being helped to walk across the corridor. He could seem to walk if his braces were in place and if somebody was helping him. He fell right in the middle of the floor, in the middle of a lobby. And, and then he, instead of getting upset, he, he says to somebody, give me my hat back. He starts laughing. He gets pulled up again, and he, and he goes to the elevator. I mean, he just had that sense of an internal yeah. dignity that surpassed the indignity of his physical condition. We're going to get there, but today, of course, everybody with a cell phone would be posting pictures of him sprawled exactly on the right. floor, and then he may not have gotten to be Roosevelt. I mean, that's something that we have to get to, whether these lessons that we're learning, how apt are they in the modern world, which is a little bit unfortunate. Now, Ted, uh, his cousin several times removed, uh, the other Teddy Roosevelt, he also had some tragedy in his life. Oh, well, I mean, Teddy was doing very well in the state legislature. At the beginning, he had kind of a swelled head, and it showed that he was able to learn from his, his problems. He would yell and scream in the state legislature, blistering. I mean, he, he, in many ways, he, he, he's that kind of fiery character that we're used to today. And then he was no longer able to get anything done because of that. So he learned that he had to collaborate with other people and tone down his histrionic comments. So he's doing great in the state legislature. And then he has a child. He has a ma falls in love with a woman. They send up a telegram to, the, to Albany saying, your child is born. And they all celebrate with cigars. 
And then an hour later, another telegram comes to him and says, your wife is dying, she was 22 years old, and your mother's dying too, in the same house. His mother had come to take care of his wife, Alice. The mother had gotten typhoid fever. Teddy races home at three in the morning, his mother dies. She's 49 years old, and then later that day, the same day, his wife died. And so he was so depressed that he stopped being in the state legislature, and he went to the Badlands, where he had purchased a ranch for adventure the year before, and he was there for two years. He became a cowboy. He's, and people don't know this, and he, you know, he also got into a gunfight. Oh, yeah, he was a wild guy out there. Yeah. Um, he did indeed get into a gunfight, and he became... With consequences to the, yeah, to the other Today, guy. I mean, yeah. well, he might make him a hero in today's world, who knows? But anyway, while he was there, he developed this huge love of nature, which becomes so important in the conservation measures that he develops. But more importantly, he'd been kind of an effete Easterner, and now he was a Westerner. So when he stands for a national situation, he's got both sides. But even more important than that, before that, he said he was the kind of person who wanted to build his resume. He wanted to go from the state legislature to the state senate, and then maybe to a congressional seat, then a senate seat, and then maybe a governorship, and then maybe the presidency. But fate had so intervened in his life with the death of these two people that he decided when he came back from the Badlands, I'm just going to take whatever job I think is worthy and imagine it's my last job, because it might be. So he comes back and he becomes civil service commissioner and everybody said, that's below you, why are you doing that? I believe in the merit system, I'm gonna do it. Then he's offered police commissioner of New York and again they say, what a thankless job, why would you wanna do it? He said, it's an adventure, I wanna do it. Then he becomes assistant secretary of the Navy and as soon as the Spanish-American War starts, he volunteers to be a soldier and they say, this is much more important as assistant secretary of the Navy than you are as a soldier. Nope, I wanna be a soldier and then eventually becomes governor, vice president, and president, but be and the youngest president in the history of the country. But he had this winding path to leadership rather than the straight up path. So that might be a lesson for people sometimes. You go horizontally or even down, but you're learning some new experience. Right, all these crises make each of these people much more complete per people. You said that in connection with FDR, but in case of Teddy Roosevelt, he goes to the Badlands, meets a new crowd of Americans. Right which he bonds with, and those, are the, those become the Rough Riders. They become his Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War. In the Spanish-American exactly. War, they come back and they join his regiment right. and all that, and he, re he represented the country, he never would have represented, he was part of the effete New York establishment. Exactly so. It was incredible. Um, the crises. Well, you mean the crises that... That each of these well, uh, fellows... You know, I mean, I, this is what we were talking about inside, which is so interesting, is in that question, does the man make the times or the times make the man, the question is, do you need a crisis to be a great leader? Because, in fact, Teddy said, if there weren't a war, we wouldn't even know Lincoln's name. If there's not a war, we won't have a general. Um, so the question is, do you need a crisis to be one of the memorable leaders? And there's something to that, because a crisis allows you to mobilize the country. It brings the country together as citizens. And obviously, Lincoln had the hardest crisis of all. I mean, he said when he first came into office, if he'd ever thought of what it was going to be like in the first six months when he was there as the country is falling apart, a civil war that's going to kill 600,000 people is already starting, he couldn't have thought he could have lived through it. And yet he not only lived through it, but he was able to make forever his name through the Emancipation Proclamation. There's a moment earlier in his history when he had a near suicidal depression when he was in his 30s. These big ambitions he had when he was 23 had not been realized. In fact, his career in the state legislature was going on a downward slide. And he was so sad that friends took all knives and razors and scissors from his room, fearing that he was going to kill himself. And his best friend came to his side and said, Lincoln, you must rally or you will die. And he said, I know that. And I would just as soon die right now, but I've not yet done anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. 
I mean, an incredible thing, again, that he can say that in his 30s. So eventually, he runs for the Congress. He does win a seat for one year only, one term only. Then he runs for the Senate. He loses. He runs again, and he loses again, and then runs as a darkest candidate for the presidency and comes into this huge crisis situation and is able eventually to work out the Emancipation Proclamation. And when he finally signs the Emancipation Proclamation and his old friend, Joshua Speed, who had been with him during that suicidal depression, comes and he said, maybe perhaps now my fondest hopes have been realized. Um, maybe I will be remembered. And indeed, of course, he has been. So he had his crisis. Teddy Roosevelt comes in at the height of the Industrial Revolution, very similar in lots of ways to today. Um, the Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy much as the globalization and tech revolution have today. You had the rise of gaps between the rich and the poor, a lot of immigrants coming in from abroad, people in the rural areas feeling set off from, this, from, the, from the people in the cities, and new inventions making people feel, oh, the country's changing in ways we don't want it to be, the telephone, the telegraph. And Teddy comes in, there's lots of violence in the street, working class people and, and capitalists were at loggerheads. There was a feeling that, that a revolution might be brewing. And he's able to mobilize the Republicans and the Democrats to reform that's moderate, that takes the worst aspects of the industrial order out and takes away some of the big companies that are swallowing up smaller companies. So he had a, a domestic crisis, not the same level of the Civil War, but one that he was able to to legislate to really make his name remembered. Two of them came into office with a crisis in place. Correct. Lincoln and, and FDR, the other two. They had to create out of, that's exactly right. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt makes not really a crisis, but he makes a, a, a national situation of the need to. But they're also, in, the for, them, it, for them, it's initiatives. It, that's ex they, for the they, others, it's really crisis that's management right. from the that's day right. to day. The other two are responding to a crisis. That's exactly right. They're reacting. Obviously, FDR is reacting to the Depression. When right. he comes in, people are lined up around the streets trying to take their, their money out of the banks. And one out of four people are not working, and more are not working at full levels. There are starving people in the streets, Lincoln having a similar situation. But Teddy is able to say, there's a hidden problem here in the industrial order, and I'm going to deal with that. LBJ comes in, and they both come in by assassinations, of course. Teddy from McKinley being assassinated, LBJ from JFK. But JFK is gone. The civil rights legislation is stuck in the, in the Senate, and LBJ decides to make it his priority. So he deliberately takes on his own initiative, something that was a hidden crisis, a big crisis, but wasn't being resolved yet, the civil rights movement. And then he creates his own memories. Right, an initiative. Um, tell everybody about the coal strike. That's a little remote from us today. So in, in 1902, there was, um, there was a, a strike for six months between the miners of anthracite coal and the coal barons. And it was going on into the fall. And in that time in New England, if you didn't have coal, you didn't have heating. So <laughs> hospitals were already closing down. Schools were closing down. And the president had no power to intervene between a, a something with the capitalists and something with the workers. They'd never had a meeting in the White House. It was considered untoward for the president to have anything to do with a private battle between workers and capital. But he knew unless he did something that this was really going to become a crisis that he'd have to deal with. So he calls them together, the coal barons and the miners, their leaders, to a meeting in the White House. And at the beginning, the coal barons don't even want to talk to the miners. They think, we can't talk to these people. It'll be okaying their strikes and their violence. So they refuse to talk to the other side. The miner comes up with an idea. What about a presidential arbitration? And we'll, whatever the commission comes up with, we'll abide by it. 
and the coal guys say, we can't do anything that he said, we won't do anything with him. So they really react badly and they start threatening Teddy in the room, but Teddy had had a stenographer take notes of the meeting at the beginning. He said, is it all right if I take notes? He had the notes published that night and all of a sudden, public sentiment turns against the coal barons. So they finally know we have to do something, but it's too embarrassing to do something to the miners and allow the miners to come up with it. So what Teddy does is he goes to J.P. Morgan, who he's already made a sort of enemy of. It's the person, of. not the bank. <laughs> <laughs> it's the person, it's the person. And he tells him the idea that we need a presidential commission, but it can't come from the miner guy, it can't come from me, how about if it comes from you? So he then is the financier of all these coal barons. He goes and meets with them in the union club, and they agree to it, and it's a fair thing. They've saved face, and they settle the strike. Now, that kind of redefined what we think of as presidential power, because it turns out that all the powers of the presidency isn't just what's enumerated in the Constitution. Correct. That I mean, you create. He created then um, the first time they can meet in the White House, the first time he can intervene in a strike, and then suddenly all presidents after that feel they have that Actually, power. Actually, they all did, because Lincoln obviously. An executive order. <laughs> redefine the relationship between the sovereign states Correct. and the sovereign national government. Right. Teddy Roosevelt did, and of course FDR with the uh, alphabet soup right. of agencies right. really changed the nature of the, federal, of, the central, of the federal government. Right, right. Now they each one create a platform and then the next guy thinks, ah, he did it, I can do it too. So they didn't just exercise powers, in some ways they, they created, right. and created the precedent uh, for those powers. And it makes sense because when the country changes and the economic situation and social situation changes, leadership has to adapt to the time. Right. Now, I think you were talking back, uh, when we were talking before, I said I always thought of some of these figures as almost superhuman because their talents were so fantastic that I couldn't, you know, it's, it's inconceivable to me that just anyone could do that stuff just with hard work and, and tools available to mortals. I never felt that way about Johnson, who may have had the greatest accomplishments, uh, given, the, given the climate that he had at the time. Just for the people who aren't, it's me, I grew up with some of this stuff, but his connection to the civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, it's really something. And he had grown into power. He had become minority leader in the Senate, the most powerful majority leader in the Senate. But he really hadn't done anything that he would say would be remembered by time. And he wasn't thinking in that way. He was just loving the power. And then he had a massive heart attack in 1955. And he said to himself after he came out of it, what if I died now? What would I be remembered for? So right after that, he got involved in helping to pass a civil rights bill through the Senate. It was a moderate bill, but it was the first civil rights bill ever to pass through the Senate. And then JFK dies. The very night that JFK dies, he sits and watches the assassination. And he says to his friends, I'm going to do five things in the next 18 months. I'm going to get a tax cut through, which Kennedy couldn't get through. I'm going to get the civil rights bill through that will end segregation in the South. Then I'm going to do voting rights. And then I'm going to do aid to education. Then I'm going to get Harry Truman's Medicare through. And worth hard work. I mean, he knew that Congress. He had every single congressman over in the first six months of his presidency, not just the leaders of Congress. He'd have dinner with them. Lady Bird would take the spouses on a tour, and he would sit and tell them, you have to do this. When he got the Civil Rights Bill through of 64, he drank with Edward Dirksen night after night after night, the leader of the minority leader of the Republicans, because he knew to get the filibuster broken, he had to have Republicans, because the Democrats- That was a real 67 vote it was filibuster a 60, in those days. days. it was 67 votes, right. So he gives him everything. In those days, you could earmark anything. You know, It didn't matter what you were saying. I'll give you pardons, ambassadorships, whatever you want in Illinois. The whole state of Illinois sunk in government largesse. But most importantly, he says to Dirksen, 
you know what, I know you want to be remembered too, and if you come with me on this bill and you bring Republicans, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> How could Dirksen resist? And meanwhile, he's calling congressmen at 9 in the morning, at 12, he even calls a senator at 2 a.m. He says, I hope I didn't wake you up. And the senator says, oh no, I was just lying here looking at the ceiling, hoping my president would call. He worked endlessly. I mean, he's an interesting example of a leader because we say now in, in leadership terms that leaders should be having emotional intelligence and leading their team. They should share credit, shoulder blame. They should never humiliate somebody in public. They should have their temper under control. And he did none of those things. Um, I mean, there's, there's moments when he was a young leader, when he was running the National Youth Administration in, in Texas, and people left oral histories. They say if a person's typing a letter and it's too, he just pull it out of the typewriter. There's one point where he's seeing somebody writing a letter. He finds out he's writing a letter to his mother, and he says, son, can't you do that and take a crap on your own time? I mean, he was impossible. Why did they stay on? And the answer is he was there before them every morning. He was there after them. They left every night. He had incredible organizational skills, and they knew by staying with him they would be doing something special. They were in the NYA. They were giving thousands of people jobs. They were in his administration. They were changing the face of the South and the country. I like the Johnson stories because they don't involve superpowers. It's hard. It's things that are available to everybody. That was, tell them what you said about, I didn't know about Superman and Batman. No, 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 I said, I said, well, I didn't bring this up to you, but I said to her, I always thought of, whenever I would read, I always liked Batman, because for crying out loud, I wasn't going to be born on Krypton, I wasn't going to have those powers, but Batman's powers always seemed available. Yeah. And to me, the only one of these, the one, the person here who's the most approachable, Right. and not necessarily in point of, not for friendship, but approachable in terms of talent, was Johnson, who just really dint a personality and hard work and perseverance and taking initiative, right. uh, got it through. And, and in some ways, he becomes the most, you know, in their aftermath, he becomes the most tragic figure. Lincoln is tragic for us because we know how it ended, but not for himself because for him it ended. But Johnson had to live with his disappointment. Yeah, I mean, th those were the years that I spent with Lyndon Johnson. And there was such a sadness that surrounded him at the ranch in those years. I mean, he knew that his domestic legacy had been cut into. I mean, what he did domestically now is being more fully understood after 50 years. Not only Medicare and three civil rights bills, but NPR and PBS and immigration reform and Head Start. I mean, it's an extraordinary, any one of those bills would have made a president's legacy. And he had it all, but then the war in Vietnam cut that legacy in two. And even as we were on the ranch and we'd be talking about his future or how he might be remembered, all he would ever say was, I just hope I can be remembered for civil rights. And the extraordinary thing about it is the last public statement he made, they were opening the civil rights papers in his library in Austin, and it was about 90 miles from his ranch to Austin. And the doctor said he couldn't go. He had had another heart attack six months prior to that, and he was on oxygen, he was in a lot of pain. And he said, I have to go. He goes, the chauffeur's driving him, he's driving too slow. He takes the wheel, even though he hasn't driven for six months, it's an ice storm. He gets there, he walks up the stairs, and he has to, he humbles, hardly can get up the stairs. He takes a nitroglycerin pill, and he gives a great speech. He talks about, everybody says that we've done a lot in this year's. We haven't done anywhere near enough. Until the black and the white man stand on equal ground, we will not have accomplished what we want to. And five weeks later, he died. Well, four of these guys died young. Yeah, I mean, they, they well, obviously, the two, the two are, who are you know, assassinated, Right. I mean, I mean, not assassinated, but um, Lincoln FDR died 62, young. And F I think. FDR had 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 um, a heart condition um, 
congestive heart failure diagnosed a year before he died. Until that time, he was in pretty good shape. But he had to live that last year knowing that his powers were waning. And yet he was still wanting to go forward until the war came to an end, until the United Nations got started. So both of them died in office. It was easier for Lincoln and FDR in a certain sense, even though harder for us. When FDR died, people were standing on the streets saying they felt lonely without this president. He was able, through those fireside chats, to make people felt that he was actually with them. There's a story of a construction worker coming home one night, and the partner says, where are you going? He said, well, my president, he's coming to speak to me in my living room tonight on my radio. I have to be there to greet him when he comes. And they said when he died, suddenly one man died and 149 people 149 million people felt lonely. Lost their best friend. Yeah, that was an extraordinary bond that he created with the and people. He, that was a pretty good use of media, new media at the time. Oh, that's one of the interesting Which things was about- a good segue to the uh, present, too. Uh, no, it is, actually. I mean, one of the things that all my guys were able to do is Lincoln had a gift for language at a time when the written word was king. His speeches would be printed in full in the newspapers and then reprinted in country farms and read aloud in pamphlet form. Teddy comes in with his punchy language. Teddy would be great today in the Twitter world. He wouldn't know how to do that. Speak softly and carry a big stick, you know, don't hit until you have to, and then hit hard. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. And then he was the right person at that time of national newspapers coming in with cartoons and punchy language. Then comes FDR with the radio, and then comes JFK and, R and Reagan at the time of three television networks. And then candidate Trump came right. along, mastering the world. Not of part Twitter. of your group, but Kennedy certainly. Uh, television set was the television was he was the he was made for TV. Absolutely. And Nixon was made for had a face for radio. <laughs> exactly. Just born a little bit too yeah. too late. Exactly yes. right. Oh, and now, just how would so today with the media that we have today? So everybody knows everything instantaneously. Everyone has a camera on their phone, so if, 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 if uh, FDR fell today, it would, be, it would go over the airwaves. On the other hand, the opportunity to disintermediate the press and communicate directly is there. How would, these guys, how would these guys have fared? And taken from the other direction, there's the opportunity to become like these people today, or is it just too cynical a time aided by technology? Yeah, I think it would have been a lot harder. I mean, think about Franklin Roosevelt, and he made the decision that the country wouldn't accept somebody who couldn't walk on their own power. So he had a code of honor among the press that they would never show him with his braces on. He couldn't walk unless he had his braces on and somebody held two arms, and then he could appear to be walking. And they knew that he couldn't walk, but they never told anybody that. If a new photographer came along and tried to shed, snap a picture of him, um, with his braces on or in his wheelchair, they would knock the camera from his hand. The other reporters. The other reporters, the older guys would. You could see that today, right? Uh, no, no way, the other reporters would be doing it right there. There's a moment in the 1936 election when he's going to give his acceptance speech and he's being helped down the aisle and he shakes somebody's hand, he falls down, his braces unlock, his speech falls out all over the floor, he says, get me up, they get him up, he puts his speeches in place, he goes back on the podium, he delivers the Rendezvous with Destiny speech, one of the great acceptance speeches. They never mentioned that he'd fallen, there's never a picture of him on the ground. I mean, think of poor President Bush was, you know, was sick in Japan, right. and they show him that. President Ford, who's one of the most athletic presidents, falls down the steps of a plane, and we see it over and over again. Right. There's a, a, almost an indignity that we want to find in our leaders today, rather than the dignity that they had before. And how about the opportunity to disintermediate the press and go directly? Because well, you, you have to say, you know, the current president is certainly transformational in terms of communication. 
No question. I mean, even when Roosevelt had the radio, that was his opportunity of going ahead of the press, because most of the press were owned by Republicans, and he was able to get beyond the press. And then the television guys, as we said, in the 60s were able to do that, and Reagan was able to do that. And now Trump was able to get beyond the cable, get beyond all the media by con you know, communicating directly with his people. I think the one thing that Lincoln might say to him, however, is that Lincoln could speak extemporaneously as well as anybody. When he was in those debates, he was fabulous. He could respond immediately. Somebody says to him, Lincoln, you're two-faced. And he immediately said, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? Yes. He could do it as well as anyone. But once he became president, he never wanted to speak without pre preparation. He said, my word matters. It is important that I speak on behalf of the people. So when even soldiers would come or people would come to celebrate a victory, he would only thank the soldiers and then go back. He would disappoint them by not giving a speech until he could prepare the speech. So I think if he would come, he might say, maybe hold this back a little. <laughs> don't do it too often, even though it's the way you communicate. Maybe don't do it when you're angry. Lincoln had this thing of when he was angry, he would write what he called a hot letter to the person, and then he'd put the letter aside and wait until he could cool down psychologically and never need to send it. When General Meade failed to follow up with General Lee's army after the victory at Gettysburg, he wrote him a long letter saying, I'm immeasurably distressed. You didn't do what I asked you to do. And then he knew it would paralyze the general. So he put the letter aside. It was never even seen until the 20th century when his papers were open. And underneath was the notation, never sent and never signed. So I got a note after I told the story once to a CEO. And he said, Lincoln saved me. And he told me that he had been told by his subordinate that somebody had done something bad in the office. And he wrote him a note on email. And then he decided, I think I'll just put it in save rather than send. And he found out the next morning the story wasn't right. So he said that was his equivalent of hot letter was save rather than send. But now you can hit send. And that's the problem. You and can hit it without meaning to hit it. Also, now you could do, um, you know, you go through, you know, you read letters from the Civil War era, and they're beautiful. Right. People who, who went, barely went to school write these beautiful long letters because that was a form of communication those right. days. And the right. telephone. Right. No, now that's right. people stop writing because people can, t can speak, and now people are writing again, but they're only writing uh, staccato. 280, right, staccato notes, uh, 280 characters with abbreviations. I don't know what's going to happen to historians 200 years from now. I mean, they'll have much more stuff about us. They'll see how we walked and we talked. When they were trying to figure out how Lincoln spoke, only that somebody said he spoke in a high-pitched voice in a diary entry do we know that that's how he spoke. Now you'll hear us speaking and talking. But we don't write letters. We don't keep diaries. And that's my treasure as an historian. When you're reading a letter that a handwritten person wrote, not a handwritten person, person wrote a handwritten yes. letter, and you're looking over their shoulder, and you feel like you're emotionally connected to them. So, I, right, but to compliment that, you have five million hours of video and yeah. watching them interact and the impressions yeah, of everybody else around them. I know. In fact, I don't know how anyone's going to do that job because you're going to have to plow through so much stuff. I think there'll be so much stuff that'll right. be difficult. Right. The, the one thing I'd, I'd just like to bring up, because I think it's one of the reasons when you say that these people were able to make ordinary talents extraordinary, energy is maybe a finite quality, but it can certainly be expanded energy. And energy is really important in any kind of successful right. position. right? And what these characters knew, not Lyndon Johnson, but the other three, was that they had to relax and replenish their energy, something I don't think we know enough about today. We're carrying our cell phones with us everywhere, right? We think our business life is so important that our own lives that we can't be out of touch for any minutes. Think about Lincoln. He went to the theater 100 times during the Civil War, and people said, your theater going She'd gone strange. 99 times. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> That was the key moment. Yes, <laughs> yes I do too. And um, let me just interrupt myself. The amazing thing is, the reason he went to the theater that night 
was that he had t given his word to the people. He didn't want to go. Usually yeah. he went for diversion. When the war wasn't going well, he wanted to imagine himself back at the War of the Roses. But that night, the war was going well. It was over. He was happy. He was talking to his friends. I said, I don't want to go. He said, I'd rather stay. But I've given my word to the people. It's in the newspapers. I have to go. I said, I wish he had stayed home, too. Yes. But anyway, and then the way he would also relax, he would tell funny stories. If he couldn't sleep at night, he would wake up his aides, Nicolay and Hay, and he would read them comic passages from Shakespeare so that when he went to bed at night, the funny story would be in his head rather than the, the worry about the Civil War. Teddy Roosevelt exercised two hours every afternoon. He would either do a wrestling match, a boxing match, or he loved taking these um, hikes in, in Rock Creek Park where there were wooded cliffs, and he made a deal that you couldn't go around any obstacle, that if you came to a rock, you had to climb it. If you came to a precipice, you had to go down it. And so he would take these people, and they'd fall by the wayside. And he finally takes the French ambassador, who's so excited, he puts his silk hat on and his silk vest, finds himself in the woods, he can't stand it. And finally, they come to a stream, he thinks, thank God, it's over. Then he said, judge of my horror, when the president said, it's an obstacle, we have to go through it, so we might as well unbutton our clothes. So I, too, for the honor of France, took off my clothes. However, I kept on my lavender kid gloves. You could never tell you might meet ladies on the other side. <laughs> but just picture him. FDR had a cocktail party every night in the White House where the rule during World War II was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about movies, gossip, books, as long as you didn't mention the war. So they all were able to get away from it in a way that I'm not sure we are now. Dare I say balance? No, that's a little too strong. What? I was going to say balance, but maybe just distraction captures it. <laughs> no, I think distraction captures yeah. it, yes. I mean, we talk about balance today, but I think then it was really just putting your mind in another channel. When Teddy was in the middle of the coal strike, he writes the Librarian of Congress to say, would you send me some books on Mesopotamia and Greece? And then he writes him back, in the middle of the coal strike, I had a wonderful afternoon yesterday, not even thinking about the coal strike and thinking about the history of Turkey and Greece. Sure. Um, so what's next? Are you going to, uh, are you going to write the, uh, the Age of Trump? I don't think so. No? <laughs> no? Too soon. No, it's not only too soon. I mean, my rationalization can be that I'm not a journalist. I, I yes, need those course. letters. I need those diaries. Right. Well, letters also, are going to be hard to come But by. also, to be honest, I... Yes, letters. <laughs> but I also need... I've only... I, it takes me so long to write these books. It took me twice as long as the... Um, World War II to write about World War II. It took me 10 years to write about Lincoln. I have to basically want to live with this guy in the morning. I want to think about him. I don't know that I would want to live with President Trump. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Um, you, know, you wrote The Team of Rivals about Lincoln. If you were to write a book about Trump, you, it would be called Team of Blank. Well, you know, I think the, I mean, I, I know that somebody said it might be called Team of Predators. I really no, 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 no. I think that's too. No, much. I'm not trying to set you up. I'll move on. No, no. I, the only thing I'll say is that I think what Lincoln understood when he had a team of rivals is that they were going to fight against each other, and that was okay as long as they kept their fighting inside the White he House. Did. And he wrote them a memo at one point when they started talking outside against each other. He said, This is what I cannot take. It would pain me greatly if our disagreements got outside. He was a ringmaster. He, he was. And he kept them. He, I mean, Johnson was saying in a different way, better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Yeah. But when he said that, give me a year, and if I don't convert you, then you go, yeah. Lincoln converted all those he threats. And people did. thought he was stupid, called him gorilla, these names, and at the end, they were all weeping at his uh, side. Yeah, I mean, they all underestimated him at the beginning. They all thought, because they were much more powerful, more celebrated, more educated, those three rivals, than he was, they thought he'll be a figure out. We'll run this thing. And they saw within months that he was something other than what they had thought. And by the end, they loved him more than anyone outside their families. It was an extraordinary story. Current events, general question. 
you know, you write about these periods and the moments and the crises. Today, the economy is doing very well. The country's at peace. You can more than quibble. There are issues and inequality, but there are always problems. And there was always, and in fact, there was more inequities years ago with segregation and all. But with the economy doing well, country at peace, why are the politics so bitter today? Almost as bitter in the worst times that any of these people faced, yet materially doing better. Well, I think part of it is that um, there is nothing binding us together right now. I mean, you're willing to go through hard times. When I think about what the people went through during the Depression, and there weren't massive outbreaks. There wasn't a move toward socialism. We kept toward democracy because people felt they were in it together. And that was part of the leadership that I think FDR was able to exude to them, that we're in a problem. It's not your fault that this depression has fallen on this land. The system is going to be changed. I'm going to make things better. But most importantly, we're going to do this together. When you're in a war, there's that common sense. Right now, people feel their own problems, and they don't feel that somebody's dealing with them. And so they seem larger. Or sometimes, because of the media, they're meant to exploit the divisions in the country rather than tend to bring people together. It's, it's a, and Do also, we need a crisis? Well, I hope that's not true. I mean, it, we can't believe that, as citizens, we can't feel connected to one another. Um, but it is important in a democracy. We have Teddy Roosevelt said that democracy will founder if people in different classes, sections, and parts of the country feel, and races, feel that the other person is the other not a common citizen. And I'm afraid that's the way it seems right now. It's tribalism in Washington. It's tribalism in the country. People in rural areas feeling separated again from the people in the cities. They feel that their problems aren't understood. And it's that need for feeling a common sense of ourselves as Americans, hopefully without an external crisis to make us feel it. Maybe that's what citizens who are active, there's lots of new people getting into politics now. There's lots of women coming into politics, yes. record than ever before. And maybe there's a sense that a new generation will come in that isn't stuck. When you're in, in war for so long, you forget what peace is. Things in Washington, it's been a long time since those guys have gotten along together. And maybe if they can just have a new crop beginning to come in, we can begin to heal ourselves. Well, this is great history that informs the present, and knowing the lives um, just makes, you know, it's totally aspirational for all of us. But again, thank you very much for writing this. If you thank come you. back, we'll spend another hour and we'll talk, maybe talk about baseball. Uh, that's my true love. Right, Boston she's Red written Sox. on that topic. Yeah. Ooh, I used to be, well, wait, wait. I used to be a Brooklyn on the, on I used the to be, Yeah. <laughs> I used to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan, and then they abandoned me. And then I went to Boston and became a Red Sox fan. I know that made me not popular here, but we all, you know, I'm much more, all right, you see, yeah. Oh, stop, stop. <laughs> Raise your hand, you're fired. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's, thank you very thank much. You. <laughs>
The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.